Ladies and gentlemen, my name is Mark Bolson. Today, the Global America Business Institute has the honor and privilege of speaking with Mr. Tom Blees, author of Prescription for the Planet, the painless remedy for our energy and environmental crises. He is also president of the Science Council for Global Initiatives, an international NGO dedicated to environmental preservation and raising standards of living throughout the world. Thank you very much, Mr. Blees, for being here with us. Thanks for the invitation. Um, just to kind of you know, start off this talk, I'd like to note that it says on your bio you've been a fishing boat captain for over 20 years on the Barents Sea. And you know, please tell our audience a little bit about yourself, how you began working on energy and the environment, and what your organization, Science Council for Global Initiatives, hopes to achieve. Uh, okay. Uh, I, I, I was indeed a fishing boat captain on the Bering Sea for 20 years uh, and that was a rather unusual occupation because I only had to work five weeks a year. So I was essentially retired when I was having a, a young children at home and, and it was a terrific opportunity that gave me a lot of time to think and uh, to explore uh, different subjects and I'm a very curious person so ultimately um, I, I started a nonprofit organization with my wife to drill water wells in third world countries. Uh, we had met in Guatemala City, she's French Canadian uh, and, and uh, we had gone down back to Guatemala when the Civil War was going on in the early 80s in El Salvador and Guatemala to see what the situation was and and we saw that uh, the condition of the people had deteriorated substantially and so we we tried to figure out what two people of limited means could do to improve the the living situation of people uh, who are very poor and we realized that uh, the most effective from a money standpoint thing that you can do is to provide safe water supplies to people who don't have them. And so we formed a nonprofit to drill water wells. And it was very difficult to find the startup funds, so I decided to write a novel and write that water project in as a background of the main character. So I wrote I started writing a novel about a fictional president. And I had to write something about his energy policy. Uh, so even though it had nothing to do with the main plot line, I was going to write a couple paragraphs about his energy policy. And I found out about some incredible technologies that, if used together, could solve incredible, in seemingly intractable problems like climate change. So, uh, so I got sidetracked basically, uh, and uh, ultimately. Uh, that led to the writing of a nonfiction book, uh, Prescription for the Planet, that laid out how we can solve some of the world's most intractable problems. When the book came out in 2008, I immediately started getting uh, contacted by scientists and politicians from all over the world, and one of them was, uh, had been one of uh, Gorbachev's top advisors who had started the International Fusion Research Project. and. And he, um, he realized, he was in his mid-70s by the time he read my book, and realized that he was not going to live to see his fusion research project produce commercial-scale energy. But when he read my book, he realized that the United States had taken a, te a fission technology to the point where um, he could live to see it. 
and where we could accomplish all of the things that he wanted. Basically, he had put many years of his life into trying to figure out how to produce abundant clean energy for the whole planet. And he realized we could do this, so he immediately put together a conference of Russian and American scientists, and uh, they decided that that we should start a, a, a think tank, basically, a, a nonprofit think tank, uh, primarily of scientists, to try and implement the proposals that I had written about in my book. And so we started this Science Council for Global Initiatives, and I ended up running it. So that's what I do now, uh, working with uh, many different countries, trying to bring about uh, the transition to advanced nuclear power so that we can uplift the standard of living of everybody on the planet. And so one of the foundational premises of your book is that, you know, Earth is facing this impending catastrophe due to climate change, and yet there are still some folk who don't believe in the arguments surrounding climate change. If you could have, say, two or three minutes with some of our leaders, what would you convey to them on why we need to um, really tackle climate change and why your book will help them understand? Like, what parts would you choose from the book? Well, since, uh, since the climate change belief or disbelief has become such a polarizing issue, if I had to sit down with uh, people who are considered climate change deniers, I would say it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if you believe in climate change or not. It's inevitable that, and it's undeniable that we need a lot of energy for the planet. We're going to have 9 or 10 billion people on the planet by mid-century. We have to provide water for them, for one thing. Mm -hmm. uh, that's going to take a vast amount of energy because we're going to have to desalinate huge amounts of water and move it around to where it's needed. All this is going to take huge amounts of energy. Also, people in developing countries, they don't want to be energy poor anymore. And so even if the United States diminished its per capita energy use by half, which is unlikely to happen, uh, but say we could do that, just providing that much energy for 9 or 10 billion people means that we would have to increase our energy production many-fold. Mm -hmm. And consequently, we need uh, some type of incredibly energy-dense power source, and the most energy-dense power source is a fast reactor. Mm -hmm. uh, because it's about, even, even with the type of nuclear reactors we have today, um, the fuel cost is trivial, but these reactors are about 150 times more efficient than the reactors we have today, so that all of the energy that you would need for your entire life could be the size of a half a ping pong ball of depleted uranium. So, so it doesn't matter if you believe in climate change or not. Unless you believe that we don't need energy, you should be looking at this technology. Now, obviously, climate change I, th I think most of us, and probably 97% of the climatologists in the world, believe that climate change is an urgent issue. Mm -hmm. and, and I personally believe that also. Uh, and this technology will help us solve that problem. But, but for somebody who's just adamantly opposed to the idea of climate change, fine. I say, it doesn't matter. Mm -hmm. We need this anyhow. Right. And I think in your book, you kind of elaborate <laughs> on that issue about how you know, whether you believe or not believe in climate change, you know, the growing population that we're facing, you know, people are going to need energy to survive, to subsist on. 
And so I'm wondering, with your argument about nuclear power, specifically integral fast reactor, could you kind of discuss what's the promise and the benefits of this technology? I think you alluded a little bit about the you know, high energy cost it's going to be to desalinize water. The light water reactor continues to be the dominant commercial nuclear power technology. Could you talk a little bit more about the history of the IFR, as well as the reasons why it's not been widely deployed as you'd like it to be? Well, um, the light water reactors that we use today were an incremental uh, deployment of the Navy reactors that were first used on submarines and aircraft carriers. And so that, that technology was developed and then it was just scaled up so that you could use them on shore to make uh, nuclear power. But the people who actually invented nuclear power um, always thought that light water reactors would be simply a transition to fast reactors because light water reactors only use less than, they use about six tenths of one percent of the energy in uranium. So if you equate that to, say, burning wood, that would be like throwing a log in your fireplace, burning off the bark, and then throwing away the log before it even got started, except that log is also happens, happens to be radioactive at that point. So, so you have a, a radioactive log that you haven't used and that you're going to have to store for tens of thousands of years safely. Um, what we want to be able to do is to uh, burn all of the energy in the uranium and we can do that with this IFR technology. So so the U.S. nuclear R&D department or uh, division basically put its chips on fast reactors as, uh, as they pretty much all agreed was inevitable. Um, and they started this project. They ran a reactor for 30 years up in uh, what's now Idaho National Laboratory. And they set out to solve all the problems associated with nuclear power, and they did. By 1994, they had essentially solved all the problems. Uh, economics, waste, they, they have a reactor that burns nuclear waste as fuel. It burns depleted uranium. There's enough for powering the whole planet for almost a thousand years that we've already got out of the ground that we would love to get rid of. So, um, so it's a technology that uh, is actually ready to deploy, and yet we haven't done it because in 1994, the Clinton administration, for purely political reasons, shut down this project right as it was finishing, and uh, and essentially buried it until. Uh, which was one of the main reasons I wrote my book was to unbury it. And, and now two years ago uh, I was able to coordinate the restart of the project uh, at the point where it left off in 1994. And so now we're again at the point where we can go out and say, okay, let's go build these reactors, let's build the recycling system that, uh, that it uses, and, uh, and we can do this now. Um, again, we're the only thing that's stopping us is political will, mm -hmm. but n now there are other countries that want this, other countries that are developing it, and if the United States continues to hold back, um, we'll just find that other countries do it. Mm -hmm. um, they're in the process already, but it would be much, much better for everyone on the whole planet if the U.S. would... Uh, actually share the technology, share the data that we already have from the project that we've already proven it works, uh, 
because uh, it's important that uh, that we get a handle on this climate change issue and on the energy issue and move away from fossil fuels. This is the best way to do it. Mm-hmm. Okay. And right, and so kind of going back to the integral fast reactor, you know, before 2011, there's been a lot of, there was a lot of interest about nuclear power around the world, but then you had Fukushima, and it revived a lot of safety concerns that, you know, frankly, the public is skeptical about, you know, is nuclear safe? Could you talk a little bit about IFR's inherent safety characteristics and how the IFR might be able to address those concerns related to nuclear safety? Sure. Um, the, uh, as I said, the IFR developers set out to solve all the problems, and one of the biggest problems with uh, nuclear power is safety. So they designed a reactor that, for, for starters, uh, runs at atmospheric pressure. And so you, you don't have to build big pressure vessels, and if there's a break in a line somewhere, you don't have to worry about steam blowing out and all this sort of thing. Um, they actually ran two tests at the reactor in Idaho where they had it running at full power and they just shut off, shut off all the system power um, to, to basically prove that these reactors, just using the laws of physics, would shut themselves down even if the control rods are all the way out and it's running at full power. Um, and it worked. It worked great. Uh, there's a movie that was made uh, that actually shows this testing that was done. It's called Pandora's Promise. Uh, and it's it's available on iTunes and Netflix and wherever, um, which if people are interested in this topic, I, I would encourage them to watch that. Um, so as far as Fukushima is concerned, the PRISM reactor, which GE Hitachi uh, hopes to build soon, uh, in probably in the UK first, uh, is seismically incredibly robust. Um, the, the ground acceleration at, at uh, Fukushima was on the order of about a little over a half of, uh, um, half of 1G. The, uh, the standard PRISM reactor could withstand 1G. So if you would have had PRISM reactors at Fukushima, they would jiggle around a little bit, but they would be perfectly fine. Not only that, but for areas that are seismically very unstable, um, you can easily improve that that 1G uh, tolerance to much higher levels if you wish. But even the standard design is enough so that you could build these things virtually on fault lines mm-hmm. and they would be perfectly fine. So um, uh, there's a, a gentleman named Nobuo Tanaka who was the head of the International uh, energy agency for I think five years uh, and uh, he's a, he's an advisor to uh, the president or to the Prime Minister of Japan on energy issues and what Mr. Tanaka wishes to do what he's proposing is a partnership with the US Korea and Japan to build the first pyroprocessing unit uh, which will have the design for this summer <clears throat> to build it in Japan because uh, it could take the three melted reactor cores from Fukushima and recycle them into perfectly good fuel to uh, run fast reactors, which Korea very much wants to do, which which uh, Mr. Tanaka believes 
should be the next step in Japan. Mm -hmm. um, they're trying to restart their 48 reactors, or at least most of them, because it's been decimating the Japanese economy to shut all those reactors down. Uh, but, but there is a, a loss of confidence by the Japanese public because of uh, the Fukushima accident and, and what's happened since. Uh, Mr. Tanaka believes that providing uh, an advanced technology that very visibly and obviously solves the problems that people feel about nuclear power is the way forward. So, and he would very much like for Korea and Japan to collaborate on this. And I'm, I'm hoping that I can help him in that regard. We were pushing on a, lot, a number of fronts this way. Mm -hmm. and, and Korea has, I think, expressed the greatest interest in this IFR technology and, and has the knowledge to do this right now. Uh, the Koreans could build fast reactors, they could build pyroprocessing units. Um, and, and there is a cooperative uh, R&D program at Argonne National Laboratory with, with South Korea and the United States. Um, so it's, it's entirely logical for uh, Japan and the United States to not do this bilaterally, to, to have uh, South Korea intimately involved. Because, you know, in, in point of fact, East Asia is is affected by uh, tremendous amounts of pollution. Uh, you may have heard of something that people call it the Asian brown cloud, um, which is uh, pollution that comes from India and China primarily, but it affects Korea and it, and it affects Japan. And so deploying these technologies widely, including in China and India particularly, um, would be in everyone's best interest. But because uh, Korea and Japan are the technologically advanced societies that have an obvious interest in doing this together, uh, we're hoping that that is what's going to happen and that the United States will be cooperative in sharing this technology mm -hmm. very soon. Mm -hmm. And this, just kind of to lead on here, this proposal of a Japan-Korea-U.S. Uh, trilateral cooperative um, uh, in nuclear technology, would that also include the private sector, or is this strictly government-to-government -government, uh, relationship? Well, it would certainly include the private sector uh, because uh, in in both Korea and the United States, well, in, in all three countries, uh, you know, it's private uh, reactor vendors that are building these things. Mm -hmm. uh, Korea particularly has, has uh, tremendous current expertise in building nuclear reactors. Mm -hmm. uh, you're building three reactors, I believe, for the United Arab Emirates at, the, at this time, and you'll be building more of your own. Um, your uh, Doosan Heavy Industries just built reactor vessels for the Chinese AP-1000s. Uh, in terms of manufacturing expertise and capability, uh, Korea puts the current U.S. to shame. We used to actually build things in the United States, uh, but uh, we've had missteps with building the AP-1000s in the United States that are embarrassingly uh, third world in nature. Mm -hmm. um, and, and we're not talking about radioactive materials, we're talking about basic engineering. Um, we've, we've let our manufacturing sector slide um, in direct uh, reverse proportion to how South Korea has developed their manufacturing. So um, 
So it would be it would be a good thing for all of us uh, to work together on these things. Right, and so then essentially the future of say any IFR project will require some form of a public-private partnership and to bring it into fruition. Yeah, yeah. Well, well, private companies right now are the ones that are holding these designs, mm -hmm. and and you know, uh, all all three of these countries have. Uh, capitalist economies to one degree or another with you know varying degrees of, of central planning but mm -hmm. um, you know it, it has to be certain you know anytime you have nuclear matters you're going to have the government involved right. but uh, but because we're basically capitalist economies this is inevitably going to be a private uh, public partnership. And kind of following from there, pyroprocessing was initially considered a proliferation-resistant separations technology, but in more recent years it's been more of a hotly debated topic because some reports have come out questioning whether it's been truly uh, proliferation-resistant. What's your take on this current debate? Uh, that question came up just this morning uh, when somebody critiqued a uh, talk that I gave. Uh, ultimately it comes down to this. Um, Anytime you use nuclear power, you create plutonium. Uh, anytime you use nuclear power, you're using fissile material, uranium-235 usually, that also can be used in bombs. If you're enriching your uranium to use it in a power plant, you can keep enriching it beyond the level that you need for power plant use and make weapons out of it. So. It, unless you believe that nuclear power is going to go away, you're always going to have the issue of fissile material and the possibility of that material being diverted for weapons use. Now, there are, there are international oversight, uh, uh, well, there's an international oversight body, the International Atomic Energy Agency, uh, that, that monitors and oversees nuclear power projects all over the world that uh, sort of oversight has to be strengthened as much as possible. And all of the countries involved should be taking an active role in trying to make that the most transparent and uh, tightest control possible. Um, and, and I think too often uh, people concerned about proliferation in the United States act as if well, if we just squeal loud enough, nuclear power will, will go away. And it's kind of like uh, an ostrich hiding its head in the sand, you know. It's not going to happen. Um, Russia, China, South Korea, other countries, they're not only building nuclear reactors in their own countries, but they have plans or are already exporting nuclear to many countries around the world. Russia is especially aggressive in this area. And many of the countries that they're exporting nuclear power to are non-nuclear weapons capable countries. And this is going to go on. So, so the proliferation risk issue, you, you can look at various types of recycling technologies like pyroprocessing and like the, the aqueous system that the French use. And you can see that some are more proliferation resistant than others. Um, but there will always be the issue. So. So if you're looking at what type of reprocessing or recycling technology you're going to use, I would much prefer to use pyroprocessing in terms of proliferation resistance because the alternative, the, the aqueous reprocessing that the French use, was originally designed 
to, to separate plutonium to make weapons. Mm -hmm. and, and likewise, uh, the enrichment technologies were originally developed to make enriched uranium to make weapons. That's how we made the first two nuclear bombs. Uh, so, to me, to fight pyroprocessing while just feeling okay about uh, centrifuge enrichment and, and, uh, and, and aqueous reprocessing that was designed for making weapons is absolutely counterintuitive and, and it, it makes no sense. So, you know, people will argue the, the issue, but nuclear is not going away. Let's do it right. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And kind of, you discuss many of these technical factors that would make diversion from an IFR system difficult in your book, but you also put forth a proposal for the creation of an international energy consortium to oversee the operations of IFR in non-nuclear weapon states. How could such a consortium further allay any proliferation concerns regarding the IFR? I think you maybe could say this U.S.-Korea-Japan uh, trilateral cooperation be a template that could be expanded, or would you see something that would have to just be created um, as a new organization, or could something from, say, even the uh, International Atomic Energy Agency act as an overseer in this new area? Yeah, actually, the, the United States and, and South Korea are in the midst of uh, so-called one, two, three negotiations um, regarding the uh, sharing of nuclear power technology and the deployment of various nuclear power technologies in Korea. And those uh, negotiations were supposed to have been finished by now, but they've they've uh, been continued. Um, primarily. Uh, one of the biggest sticking points is that the United States does not want South Korea to be using pyroprocessing. And uh, just prior to uh, the, the first summit meeting between President Park and President Obama, um, we had a meeting to discuss this issue with President Park's uh, nuclear policy advisor. And, and he was saying to the representative from the White House that was there, well, why don't we create an internationally owned and operated uh, recycling, nuclear fuel recycling uh, body that would be completely transparent and the United States could have its own people there operating the plant. Uh, that doesn't seem to have gone anywhere um, for reasons that were almost embarrassingly um, foolish, I think. Uh, the idea was brought up by the representative from the White House. Well, how about if uh, a future Korean administration decided they wanted to make bombs and they just uh, kicked out all the inspectors? Well, the fact is that South Korea has, and has had for a long time, the capability to make nuclear weapons. It's not because they don't know how to do it. It's because they have chosen not to do it, and this is the case with most of the countries in the United in the world, who uh, have the capability but have not done it. There are, uh, by CIA estimates, over 30 countries that have the capability to make nuclear weapons at any time. So, uh, so the idea that we shouldn't be cooperating with South Korea and creating a very transparent, international, oversight regime for this technology. It seems to me ridiculously counterproductive.
-hmm. and and uh, I'm hoping that you know that position will change uh, because Korea was certainly uh, being not only forthcoming but but forward-thinking in proposing something like this and so far the negotiations are still ongoing. Mm -hmm. And I think kind of one of the themes that seems to be developing in our conversation today is that you know political will is a very important to kind of move these major projects along and you know with that in mind here in the United States we've had such an issue finding a long-term sustainable waste management facility um, you know, Yucca's been in the work for many decades now, and yet we haven't gone anywhere. I was wondering if IF technology is adopted here in the United States, how do you see that affecting the debate over Yucca Mountain? As well as now that um, Senate Minority Leader Harry Reid is stepping down, how do you think this will kind of impact the overall direction of, say, waste management in the United States as it relates to Yucca? Well, the current type of nuclear waste that we have, or what we call nuclear waste, which is actually fuel that we should be using, uh, is going to be radioactive for tens of thousands of years. And so Yucca Mountain was designed to safeguard uh, that highly radioactive, well, gradually diminishing radioactive, but uh, long-lived radioactive material for tens of thousands of years. And arguably, that's a very difficult thing to do. If you, um, if you use that spent fuel instead for fuel and IFRs, you end up with uh, a waste product that is radioactive above natural uranium ore uh, background or uh, radiation levels for only about 300 years. And it would be in a form that's uh, inert, that essentially would be like glass or ceramic, that wouldn't leach anything into the environment for thousands of years, even if it was uh, in the middle of an aquifer and had water running over it. So, so um, you would by by using this technology, uh, it in in place of light water reactor technology, we would essentially consume all the nuclear waste, and what we're putting in Yucca Mountain would be absolutely no problem for a, a few hundred years, no big deal. I mean, and, and in reality, you could bury this stuff anywhere because it's not gonna leach into the environment until long after it's it's no longer radioactive. So, so we could use Yucca Mountain as a temporary storage facility if we wanted, put fuel casks in there and until we recycle it all. Um, and we could just have a, a recycling plant right outside Yucca Mountain or even inside Yucca Mountain um, that recycles all this, makes usable fuel, and, and supplies uh, fast reactor fuel to countries all over the world. With the amount of waste that we currently have in the United States, and let's say that there is a uh, reprocessing plant next to Yucca Mountain, how much fuel would that produce for the entire world? Well, let's see. Um, we've been running nuclear reactors. We've got about 100, roughly 100 reactors in the United States. Um, We've been running them for, on average, what, 35 years, mm -hmm. something like that. You would only get about, for every 100 tons of, uh, of, of what we call nuclear waste, spent nuclear fuel, you'd get about uh, two tons of uh, actinides, of fissionable actinides. Uh, you get about three tons of fission products that, you, that will not be radioactive for very long. 
um, and you'd get about 95 tons of essentially depleted uranium that someday you could use. So uh, basically you're talking about taking that 2% and burning it in fast reactors. So um, we would be able to process all of it and, and build a relatively small number of, of uh, integral fast reactors to use it up. The vast majority, 95% of it, is going to be depleted uranium that's just you set aside. It's easy to handle. I mean, literally, you can handle it. You can hold it in your hand. Um, and, and that would be set aside as future fuel. Mm -hmm. So, um, so the, the, the disposal of nuclear waste is an extremely doable proposition. Mm -hmm. And, um, and it, would, it would take the whole political problem of Yucca Mountain away. And kind of last question is that the United States and Korea have had a very successful um, close cooperative relationship surrounding R&D and nuclear energy as well as fast reactor uh, technologies. In your view, how important is U.S.-Korea cooperation for the future of the IFR system and the ultimate realization of the vision you laid out in your book? Uh, South Korea is the country that is most um, prepared to implement fast reactor technology and in fact I think your your facilities right now are superior to what we have in the United States so it's entirely a government uh, a government will issue and an international politics issue um, th there is no country that is in a better position to work with the United States to deploy this technology around the world and, and, and you have the manufacturing capability to be a major player in this, if not the major player. Because of Fukushima, the Japanese have a, a very uh, compelling reason to be part of this, and they also have great manufacturing capabilities. You know, in some ways, it would be preferable to um, have those three countries, the U.S., Japan and Korea <clears throat> cooperate on a project that would uplift the standard of living of everybody on the planet. We're, we're in 2015 now. Those who fought in World War II are the last of them are dying. Um, there is still residual political and, and psychological tension because of World War II. Um, and, and that Tension is between Korea and Japan, between China and Japan. I, I can't think of a better way to finally put that to rest than for these countries to cooperate on something that's going to literally transform the world for the better. Well, thank you very much, Mr. Blees. It's great to hear this kind of refreshing take on nuclear technology. Is there anything else you would like to say to our audience? Well, I would just like to say that uh, people in my generation, I'm, I'm in the baby boomer generation, uh, we've kind of created a mess for the younger generation uh, in a lot of ways. And, um, you know, I have, I have children that are 28 and 31 years old, and they're looking at the world that we've left them. Uh, I, I, like for the younger people in the world who are listening to this to uh, to know that there there is a way out of these problems um, 
hopefully uh, the work that was done by people of my generation can be implemented by the younger generation. A lot of this is not technical in nature, it's, it's political in nature. And, and the, the sort of isolation that uh, was prior to the age of the internet um, kind of breeds nationalism and, and, and racism and, and that sort of thing. And, and an opening up of uh, international contacts that's been enabled by the internet primarily um, it has a younger generation now looking at themselves more as, as citizens of the world as opposed to citizens of a particular state or a particular country. And I think that bodes well for the future. So um, I'm, I'm encouraged. Um, my children are perfectly optimistic, but I think that's partly because they believe that their dad is going to do his Save the Planet project and be successful. <laughs> I have great optimism because of uh, the young people of the world today uh, taking the, the evolution of society, which began with uh, villages and tribes and, and gradually moved to city-states and then, and then nations, um, to the next ultimate level, which is citizens of the world. Well, thank you very much, Mr. Blees. Um, for our audience out there, if you have some time, please go out and get his book, Prescription for the Planet. Um, it's a great read. Um, it's also free on his website, which is Science Council um, for uh, Global Initiatives. Please check it out. It's, it's wonderful. Thank you very much. Thank you.